This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. This morning, we're going to talk with uh, Jonathan Thompson. Jonathan Thompson is an award-winning freelance author, journalist, and editor. He usually writes about the land, culture, and communities of the American West. Jonathan is the author of River of Lost Souls, The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster and the soon-to-be-published novel Behind the Slick Rock Curtain. Jonathan is fascinated by the complexity of the world around him and is happy to delve into almost any topic, which is why I wanted to bring him on. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to come on. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, and also, um, we know each other from way back. I was an archaeologist at uh, Crow Canyon in Cortez, Colorado, Crow Canyon Archaeological Center, and you have a link with that spot. Uh, Yeah, I do. Um, My dad was the uh, executive director and also the research director there. And a number of other, he wore a number of other hats at Crow Canyon. He was there for for many years. And so I, I spent a lot of time there uh, in my youth. And that's where we ran into each other first, I think. Yeah, long time ago. Yeah, that was a good place to be at the time, definitely. So, you know, speaking of of that area and, and Durango, in early August of 2015, uh the kids and I, my, my two kids and I, we'd been up camping in the mountains around Durango and doing a little bit of backpacking and fishing and swimming and, and just camping out. And we came back to Durango for um, some, some food and supplies. And we drove into Durango and the Animus River was orange. And it wasn't yeah. just like any sort of orange. It was bright, fluorescent orange. And it ran it was orange all the way through town. You know, my, my kids were like, what the heck is going on? And we went down to the river and it stank. And what, what were we seeing? You were seeing the, uh, the results of the uh, Gold King mine spill, which was basically 3 million gallons of water that had backed up inside a mine that came out all at once um, and ran down the... the the watershed all the way um, all the way from Silverton, above, above Silverton, about six miles above Silverton, through Silverton, down through the Animus Gorge into Durango, and all the way down into New Mexico and into Utah via the San Juan River, which the Animus runs into. Uh, and that was the orange color. I like to call it tang. Yeah, um, it looked like tang, tang that's right. But some people call it mustard, but I thought it was more tang. But uh, it... Uh, most of that was um, iron oxides, which is um, the same kind of stuff that turns Red Mountain. Uh, if you've been over Red Mountain Pass, the reason it's called Red Mountain Pass is because the mountains are red, and they're red because of iron oxides, which are just just iron. Um, but the more harmful stuff was was the stuff you couldn't see, which was zinc and cadmium and arsenic, um, lead. And that sort of thing, which was also backed up inside that mine that came rushing out that day. Yeah, it was it was a big it was a big deal uh, for sure, and it was very shocking to everybody, especially since it happened in August when the river was low, and the river was normally would have been very clear, and then this orange slug I, I call it came through, and it was just uh, it was it was quite the upheaval, I would say. Why did it come out of the mine at that time? What happened? Yeah, so basically what happens when you build a mine is it 
hijacks it hijacks the groundwater system, hijacks the mountain's hydrology, basically because water wants to come out, you know, it wants to follow the path of least resistance. So you get all that groundwater that's kind of trickling through there. A lot of it ends up going towards the mine, going into the mine, and then running out of the mine. And in the process, that um, that water is exposed to oxygen and it's exposed to sulfites, which are are naturally occurring element in the rock that's especially present in um, volcanic areas. And uh, there was a chemical reaction that creates sulfuric acid. And so then the water becomes acidic and then it dissolves the other metals that it encounters, which are a lot since it's a mining area. So there's a lot of metals. So you get a lot of zinc, like I say, aluminum, sometimes mercury, uh, lead, etc. That runs out of the mine as basically like a creek. You know, it's like a come out in pretty large quantities. And what happened at the Gold King is that, which hadn't really produced any ore since the 1920s, is that the ceiling collapsed on that mine, and it caused that water to back up. That would have normally come out, it was backing up in there. And then, at some point, the either the state or the EPA, it's not clear, they came back and they kind of backfilled the mine so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't, basically all come out at once. They were trying the to hold EPA it back. back up. Yeah, I mean, they were more like just trying to cover it up. They they wanted, they had put a valve in it. They had put a, a pipe through the backfill so that it would it would actually continue to drain. But they wanted, they didn't want people going in there and they didn't want that sort of thing happening. So that August, the EPA and their contractors, they were working on another mine nearby trying to clean it up, trying to deal with the drainage problem. And the next project was going to be the Gold King mine. Um, and so they went up there and started poking around in that backfill um, for reasons that are somewhat unknown at this point. But they, the idea was to kind of assess the situation and see what was going on. And as they did that, they uh, basically breached what was a dam holding back a huge amount of water. And you, there's videos of it. The EPA guys videoed, videotaped this. And you see it coming out as like a little spurt, kind of like a spring, and then a very big spurt, and then it just kind of all comes rushing out. Pretty dramatic, um, because as it rushed out, it also picked up a really large amount of the waste pile, waste rock pile that's... It was that just sitting there? ...below the mine. Yeah, that sits there. When they mine, you know, they pull all this stuff out. They take the ore to the mill, but all the other waste rock, they call it, they just pile up like... That's what, when, you, when you're in mining country, you see that, that big kind of, usually it's orange or yellow kind of rock. And a lot of that ended up going with the water. Clarify this for me. So this water, this poisoned water that comes out of the mine, it was, it was always coming out just in a smaller amount that could be potentially absorbed into the river or at least not noticed as much in the river so it was it was still there it's what what happened in august 2015 was that it just all came out at once is that right that's correct it was coming out at that point before before it started getting really backed up when it was actually just running out it was running out at about 250 to 300 gallons per minute you know that's quite a bit but you know it's not enough to turn the whole river orange right basically it gets diluted by the other water that said, that doesn't mean that it's not noticed at all, because it, it is noticed in fish populations and aquatic life. Uh, and the reason we know that is because up until um, about 2005 or maybe 2004, 
the water that was coming out of there was being treated by um, a mining company. They were they were running it through lime and basically getting it to a standard, you know, pretty much drinking water standard before they put that water in back into the river. Um, in 2005, that water treatment plant shut down. And you can see in fish populations, as well as in water quality, but also, you know, most significantly in fish populations and fish diversity, you could see a massive drop for up to about 30 miles downstream, you could see it. Very oh, wow. apparent between 2005 and 2010. Why did that so, treatment facility shut down? It's part of a very long and complicated story, but to make it short, basically there was a, the last mining operation that was in the San Juans was the Sunnyside Mine, uh, run by the Sunnyside Gold Corp., which is now run by Kinross, which is a huge global corporation. It shut down in 1992, and when it was running, they were treating all of the water that was coming out of their mine, which is right below the Gold King Mine. Um, and that was actually 1,600 gallons per minute that was coming out. So that's like a, that is like a little brook, you know, certainly bigger than the Santa Fe River most days. Right. That was coming out, but they were treating all that water. And when they shut down, they were prepared to just leave. What they were going to do is they were going to plug their mine. They're going to just basically put a giant concrete cork in the mine so that the water stopped coming out, and then they were going to leave. And the state said, no, you can't do that. There were lawsuits back and forth. And the deal was that the Sunnyside Mine would have to actually put three corks in their mine. Plus, they would have to continue to treat the water while they cleaned up other mines that they didn't have any connection to. And in a way, it was sort of like offset projects. What they were trying to do is lower the total amount of pollution in the watershed uh -huh. so that when they stopped treating their water, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't create a net increase in metals, if that makes sense. Right. Um, because when they put the corks in, they know that the thing is that you, you can't stop. In this country, where it's highly fractured rock, highly fractured geology, so there's no real way to stop the water. You can't just put the cork in there and hope that it stays inside the mountain. It, it will come out someday. And uh, so that was this whole deal. It didn't work out that well, um, it turns out, for various reasons. So what happened is Sunnyside came up with this deal where they sold their water treatment plan, essentially, or turned it over to this other guy who wanted to revive mining in the Gold King mine. They turned over the water treatment plant to him and paid him to keep it running for a while so that he would have it to treat the water that was now coming out of the Gold King mine, because that's where that water that was plugged up ended up coming out of, was the Gold King mine. It had actually been dry before that, and so it was starting to come out of there. So anyway, that guy ended up, he went broke, basically. Like, he didn't have enough capital to do his project. He went broke, and the water treatment plant shut down. And when that happened, uh, it, you know, it, it sent alarm bells through the kind of the water quality community that was up there, but uh, not really anybody else because it was basically because it was an invisible issue. You didn't see it. Right, you didn't see but it. But when they did yeah, but when they did the fish surveys, you certainly saw it. Um, it was very obvious what had happened. And, and in the meantime, the, the uh, local volunteers were sampling the water, and the State Department of Health was sampling the water, and they could see it as well. So that actually triggered this very long process of trying to figure out what to do with the Gold King Mine that really culminated, uh, I would say, on that day in August 5th, 2015. You know, they were trying to fix this problem is what they were trying to do, and they just went about it in a way that 
ended up with sort of disastrous consequences. Disastrous consequences, but then it brought it to everybody's attention um, because because it was the color of tang running through the city of Durango. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that was that's the huge silver lining, is that it made a problem that was invisible and therefore unnoticeable to most people and off most people's radar. It made it visible, um, very garishly visible, and all of a sudden acid mine drainage, which is something most people, you know, hadn't really even thought of, was on everybody's mind. Right. Uh, abandoned mines, draining abandoned mines, heavy metal loading, all these, you know, all these terms that nobody had ever thought about. Uh, right, but yet that was were, impacting all of our rivers anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Jonathan, I want to step back just a little bit and have you give us some of the context for the mine disaster. I grew up in Colorado. And my dad was kind of an explorer. He liked to get out and, and go to a lot of different places. And my childhood memories are just filled with uh, old mines high up in the mountains, going places we shouldn't probably have gone. But um, there are mines everywhere throughout Colorado. There's something like 23,000, 24,000 abandoned mines um, throughout Colorado, and there's hundreds right there in the Animus Valley watershed, in the Animus watershed. Give us some of this larger context of, 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 of the mines and their impact on the environment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Silverton, so um, for people who haven't been to Silverton, it's, it sits at 9,300 feet um, in the San Juan Mountains. It's ringed by uh, mount, mountain passes. You can't get in or out without going over a mountain pass. Um, these passes are often closed in the winter for because of avalanches. Um, it's a pretty severe place. It's not exactly a place that you would think people would choose to live, but they did. It's starting in the 1870s because of uh, because of the minerals in the mountains there. It's also it's in Silverton sits right at the south edge of what's called the Silverton Caldera, which is a collapsed lava dome. It's very heavily mineralized and in the 18, in 1873, the land, basically the mountains were all taken away from the Utes to make way for mining for the white miners to go in. And um, immediately Silverton boomed because people were just flooding in from all over the place. It was the next big kind of boom uh, area. And they were starting to put mines in, a lot of them. But then in 1882, the railroad finally made it into Silverton, and that really just opened the flood doors to full-on industrialization of the mountains, I would say. Um, you know, and it's, it's hard to, to kind of imagine even now when you're walking through some of those places. If you, if you go around Silverton, you can hike up into these beautiful alpine basins and not see a single person. Um, and they seem pretty pristine until you kind of start looking around and you see the yeah. holes in the, the side of the mountain and you see some timbers and then you start seeing, like, machinery and... You know, what, what you don't see is that a lot of those mines, uh, those just, you know, one hole in the, in the mountainside, it can lead to five, six, seven miles of tunnels and stuff back inside that mountain. Basically, the inside of those mountains inside the Silverton Caldera are, are almost all kind of like Swiss cheese. Yeah, the area that we and, used to always go and play in around uh, Cripple Creek, Colorado, on the, you know, on the west, southwest side and west side of Pikes Peak, that... 
they they talk about you know it's just it it is like Swiss cheese. It's there's there's hundreds of miles of tunnels under there, and a lot of them not even mapped. Yeah, and that's you know I mean that's one of the challenges when you're trying to uh, clean up these mines because, like I say, they a lot of them drain acid mine drainage, and you want to stop that. But you know, like I, if you put a plug into one hole, then it's sort of like whack-a-mole. It's going to come out somewhere else. You don't know where because, because like you say, that you know they, they usually the miners usually did map them, but they didn't do a necessarily an accurate job. They didn't have you know any kind of the technology we have today, so it was kind of tough to map what was going on underground. So really, nobody knows in a lot of cases what's going on underground. And so you've got all these mines that are draining. That's kind of the most insidious uh, kind of pollution problem and the hardest one to deal with because really the only way that you can really clean it up, the only sort of fix is to treat that water indefinitely, forever. Forever. Um, and people don't, you know, that's hard to grasp. Uh, after the Gold King spill, a lot of people said, it just needs to be cleaned up once and for all. We need to put the money there and do that. But you can't. Like, that, it just doesn't work that way right, right now. And, um, you know, evidence of that is that in Spain and, and throughout the Roman world, uh, where the Romans were mining for, for various metals, there is still draining mines, leftovers that are 4,000 years old, that have been polluting water for 4,000 years. So you've got all this at the time, a, a late 1800s, early 1900s, all this unregulated mining comes into the mountains of Colorado, pulls out tens of millions, if not billions of dollars um, worth of minerals, and then leaves... And we have to deal with this indefinitely, what they, le- what they left. That's correct, yep. Yeah, so if you go through the you know, mountains of Colorado or any kind of mining area, you'll see a lot of these water treatment plants that will continue to run forever, or at least until some other solution can be uh, devised. You know, I mean, sometimes you can try to cut off the water flow into a mine from outside somehow, and that helps, but otherwise, yeah, you're... You're going to be doing that, and usually the taxpayer pays. Right. The people responsible are long gone. Um, you know, and that's it's all a, the product of our, I mean, really it was all subsidized by the federal government. You know, this idea that these miners were these kind of uh, rugged individuals with a pick and a shovel in their burrow up there digging, you know, trying to make, make a life for themselves is, is really just a myth. I mean, for the most part, after that first wave of prospectors comes in, basically the capitalists would take over. The, the East Coast investors, the corporations, they would come in and they would, you know, exploit the workers, exploit the land, uh, and basically suck as much profit out of the the place that they could, and then they would leave. Well, and that's kind of one of my questions here: is what does this Gold King disaster and the and the context that you're giving us here, this historical context, what does it tell us about resource extraction in the West? in general, both then and now? Well, I mean, there are huge, there are amazing parallels, really. I mean, kind of scary parallels, if you ask me. When you look back and you look at the early 1900s, for example, um, in mining country, and then you look at the early 2000s, for example, in uh, oil and gas country, the same sort of patterns taking place. And of course, we have more regulations now, but it it doesn't, uh, I wouldn't say that we necessarily have solved the problem. So one of the big issues throughout mining country was that, uh, was tailings, mine tailings. Um, 
And this was an issue in the early 1900s. And this is something that kind of came as a surprise to me when I was writing this book and doing the research, is how big of a movement there was to try to get the, the miners to clean up their tailings. Because what they would do... Even at that time? They would, yeah. So that what the miners would do is they pull the ore, you know, tons and tons of ore out of the mines, and then they mill it, meaning they basically pulverize that rock. And then they use various means to separate out the metals from everything else. The metals usually made up, you know, maybe 1%, 2%, 3% of the total quantity. The other 95% uh, ended up as tailings, waste. And that, um, that stuff still had a lot of the metals in it. It still had metals that weren't marketable in it. For example, zinc, which is toxic to fish and to people. It, for many years, no one could figure out how to use it. So they would throw that into the tailings. Uh, it also had all these sulfites in it, which creates acid mine drainage that I talked about. Plus, it was this very fine dust. Um, and what they would do with that for years and years and years is they just dumped it straight into the river. And so usually mills were located next to streams because they used that for um, hydropower and they used it for their processing. But plus, it made it really easy to get rid of their tailings. They just threw it in the river. Right. And so the Animus River in Durango, 50 miles downstream, was almost always, it wasn't the orange color of the Gold King. It was more of a yellowy kind of Dijon mustard color, uh, yellow-gray, almost constantly because of tailings. And so the farmers down in Durango and the townspeople of Durango, they protested. They filed lawsuits. They did. It's amazing how big of a movement it was to try to get the mine owners, to try to get laws that required the mine owners to capture, basically to capture their tailings. But the response was always the same. And what the mine owners would say is, look, you know, we don't deny that we're polluting the river. We do. We're doing it. We're dumping our stuff in there. But we have to because we're the big economic engine in this place, and we provide a lot of jobs. And if you make us clean up our mess, we're going to go out of business. And what's going to happen to all those jobs? And what's going to happen to your, you know, your economy? Done. So in the end, it took decades before anything was actually done. So for, for really from the beginning of mining in this area in the 1870s, 1880s, until the 1930s, there was un limited, uninhibited dumping of tailings into the river. And there were numerous lawsuits. And this was happening all over mining country. And all over mining country, there were protests, there was lawsuits. Um, and, and the funny thing is that the miners almost always lost in the lawsuits. The farmers, the downstreamers, I call them, they almost always won. But the judges would just, they wouldn't make them stop. They would, they would make the miners pay the farmers a little bit of money, some kind of slap on the wrist, and then they would do nothing else because of the economy, um, because of the economic argument. Which so, is, when you're drawing these parallels, I'm just, I'm just sitting here thinking of oil and gas in New Mexico right now is it, it, and in Colorado. We hear the same thing um, again and again is don't regulate us because the economy depends on it, jobs depend on it. Meanwhile, methane, CO2, and, ground, and groundwater pollution continues. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think methane is the best analogy because here the oil and gas companies, they just vent it or they flare it. You know, they burn it and they say, oh, well, we can't contain it. We can't capture it because it costs too much. It costs too much to build the gathering systems. It costs too much. So we have to flare it. Their argument is that 
if if we had to pay to to capture it, then we go out of business. And then where are you now? Then you know, New Mexico especially, which gets so much of its money from oil and gas, uh, they end up kind of being stuck in a in a hard position when it comes to regulating that kind of stuff. Uh, There's an article on the front page of the Los Angeles Times this morning. Um, pointing out that within the Los Angeles basin and in the city, there are thousands of abandoned oil wells from the early part of the century that are leaking toxic gas, poisoning waters, all of this very similar to the mining situation where the oil and gas industry came in, made lots of money, left left a mess, and and then everybody else has to deal with it. Yep, yeah. I mean... It's amazing that we're repeating the same thing over and over again. It's kind of unbelievable. Yeah. Hi, this is Christina Ortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. Jonathan, what's what's fueling the current oil and gas boom? Um, yeah, it's it's a combination of things for sure, but most of it is well, it was high prices. I mean, or a combination really. What happened is that you know in the in the mid aughts, in around two thousand five or so, hydro fracking, what we call fracking, which is actually a combination of horizontal drilling and multi stage hydraulic fracturing, enabled uh, drillers to get to find, economically feasibly extract uh, oil and gas from shale formations, and uh, so that happened. And you started seeing these really expensive wells being drilled, and and lots of production of natural gas going on. In the meantime, at the same time that that was happening, global oil demand was increasing, largely in part because China was. You know, its economy was growing so fast. So many more people were driving, and they were using a lot more oil. So what you saw is that oil prices started going up pretty considerably. And then the financial crisis hit the uh, United States and, well, the whole world. Um, and what the Fed did uh, is they came in and lowered interest rates considerably, and they did what's called quantitative easing. So they went on this drilling frenzy fueled by debt, uh, low-interest debt, and enabled by this new technology that, that had been developed to get into the shale. And that just created this, you know, this huge boom that lasted until 2014 when, the, when oil prices hit $150 a barrel. Uh, just went crazy. And then, of course, there was a price crash, and the boom slowed. But it didn't really totally end because prices did come back eventually. Now, just to get put that in perspective, I was there, you know, yeah, uh, oil was $150 a barrel back then in 2014. Now, right now, it's sitting at about $50 a barrel. So it's three times as much. But there's still so a bit of a think about, there's still a bit of a drilling boom going on. There or, is. Prices did come back, and they were going high. But now they're actually the reason they're down at 50 is because of the coronavirus. They were a little bit higher than that. But one of the things you notice is that after 2014, when prices crashed, the boom really slowed. Uh, almost died in places like North Dakota, where it had just been going crazy. Um, Wyoming slowed down a little bit in Colorado. New Mexico 
in the Permian Basin, uh, that's where you're seeing, you're continuing to see a boom there. And the reason is, is because it's basically, it's cheaper to drill for oil there, and it's closer to the refineries on the Gulf Coast. So, uh, so they have a lower break-even point. So as long as prices don't drop too low, they can, they can continue to be somewhat profitable in theory. Um, but again, like what that means is a little bit uh, unclear because of the amount of debt that they're fueled by. And so, you know, this whole thing could come crashing down at any time. Um, but right now, you know, oil companies are, are very scared and nervous because the coronavirus, you know, it has lowered prices significantly. And when you get prices lowered uh, like that, you know, it cuts into profit. If you think, if you think of $10 a barrel difference and you've got a, a well that's kicking out a million, you know, a million barrels a month or something like that, well, then you got a lot of money right there. you got $10 million difference. And that's going to be reflected not only in the communities where the oil patch is and, and not only in profit margins, but also in revenues for the state of New Mexico, for example. Um, you know, New Mexico's cranking out huge amounts of oil right now. They're becoming, they're the third biggest producer, producing state in the nation right now, I believe. And, you know, something like a million barrels of oil a day coming out of New Mexico. Um, and so when you get these price fluctuations, it's going to really hit state budgets uh, pretty hard next year. So you've got this debt-fueled bubble that is somewhat pushing this uh, this oil and gas boom that we're seeing here in New Mexico. And you've got then the coronavirus hitting. We've also got climate change. And if in order to meet international climate goals, if there's ever a big push to do that, which there's going to have to be at some point, all of these planned and existing oil and gas infrastructure, all these wells, all these roads, the pipelines, they're going to be abandoned right before the end of, of their, their usable life. So then they're, they're stranded assets. So there's, there's another bubble happening there, right? And what does that mean yeah, exactly? I mean, under, stranded assets. Um, it means that they invested in these things, but they haven't uh, paid off yet. You know, you see it with coal plants right now where they're, they're no longer usable. They're going down before the end of their, their intended life. The, the companies have nothing to do with that. Like, they can't sell them, obviously. And they end up becoming a burden on the on the company rather than a an asset in a sense. Yeah, I mean they're called stranded assets, but but and what often happens is, you know, these companies have usually have bonds to that force them to clean it up. But as is the case with the uh, the mining companies, a lot of times those bonds are very inadequate amounts. Or sometimes the companies are even self bonded. Um, meaning that they kind of said that they, well, they promised that they would pay to clean it up rather than actually putting up a bond, um, and then they don't. And so then, again, it ends up being uh, put on the taxpayer. Right. Jonathan, in our last 15 minutes or so, um, I kind of wanted to switch topics here to Lost Souls Press. I wanted to know, I want to know more about that. 
Um, I've got tons of follow-up questions on fossil fuel production, but uh, we've only got an hour here. So, <laughs> so if you don't mind, gotcha. could, I'd like to hear about your publishing house. So let's see here. I wrote, you know, as you've said in my bio, I, I wrote a book called uh, River of Lost Souls, and that was published by Tory House Press, a great little uh, independent um, nonprofit publishing house based out of Utah, and they mostly do uh, stuff that has to do with conservation, um, mostly in the West. But then uh, I've always kind of wanted to, I've always liked to write fiction, always wanted to write fiction. And so after I finished with that book, I started writing a novel called Behind the Slick Rock Curtain. When I when it came time to figuring out how to get it published, <clears throat> I started just kind of looking into how the, the bigger publishing world kind of works. You know, there's there's a few independent presses like Tory House that allow you to just submit your manuscript straight to them, and they read it, and they give you the yay or nay. But... Um, but for the most part, what you have to do to get a novel published, um, as maybe you know, Jim, but uh, you have to first find an agent. And right. I thought, I had always thought that that was like, they'd be wanting to come to me, kind of like a real estate agent, right? Like, I'd be able to go out <laughs> and have my pick. But then what I learned is that you actually have to, not only do you have to get them to like your manuscript, you first you have to get them to read your manuscript. And that's like just this crazy ordeal of writing query letters over and over and over again and trying to sell yourself, trying to hook these people with, you know, a one-page letter. And I like to do graphic design. I like to do photography. I like, I like that whole, the whole idea of, a, of producing a book. And so I was like, you know, why not just publish it myself? It occurs to me that, like, my father, before he died um, in 1998, he had written two novels that he never got published. And I was like, you know, it would be great to publish those too. And, and then I, you know, I kind of started thinking of other writing projects I had that weren't really, I would say, super commercially viable, but might be interesting for people. So, so yeah, so I started Lost Souls Press. Uh, I did a little uh, Indiegogo crowdfunding thing and, and got some pre-orders on some of the books and, um, plowing ahead so the first the first book will be a novel behind the slick rock curtain by me and that's a thriller right like a it's sort of a thriller kind of like a suspense uh, environmental suspense kind of a mystery that takes place mostly in what i call the real bears ears national monument meaning the original boundaries right that obama drew that before it was shrunk by donald trump so a lot of it takes place there. Um, the two main characters are Malcolm Brodigan and Eliza Santos, and they're looking for Eliza's husband and Malcolm's friend, Peter Simons, who's an artist who went missing in the canyon. In the process of looking for their friend, they end up uh, stumbling upon some dastardly schemes and corrupt politicians. Uh, so, so kind of like what we've rebels. been talking about so far this show. <laughs> exactly, yeah, a lot of the same sort of stuff. The protagonist... Malcolm Brodigan, or one of the protagonists, sort of protagonist-antagonist, because he is a disillusioned environmental journalist who has gone over to the dark side and is writing fake news. And is the book out right now? No, it's not. It'll, okay. it'll come out in June. And where can folks pre-order? You can go to lostsoulspress.com. Okay. You can find some more details there. It will be, of course, on Amazon. It's not up there yet for pre-order, but it will be. 
you know, I would, of course, prefer it if people got it from an independent bookstore. It will definitely be on sale here at Maria's Bookshop in Durango and hopefully in um, other independent bookshops around the region. So the plan, plan release date is Summer Solstice this coming June for Behind the Slick Rock Curtain by Jonathan Thompson. Um, I, I'm kind of just curious, where? how did you get to this book? So you've laid out the plot and the characters and, and what's happening somewhat, but how, how did you arrive at, at this story? That's a good question. I think, I mean, I, it's kind of been in my mind for a long time, like sort of the, the basic structure of it, this idea of looking for somebody who's gone missing. The way I came to that is that I've actually known either directly or, or by a couple degrees removed a number of people who have sort of vanished or so-called vanished in, in the Southwest, in the Four Corners region. I don't know, something about it like intrigued me. That, just that idea. So that's kind of where I got that part of the premise. It, back in the 90s, there was the, the fugitives uh, in this part, in the Four Corners. I don't know if you remember that I one. I do remember that, yeah. Two of those guys I went to high school with, like I knew them, you know. And for a long time, nobody found two of them were missing for years and years. Uh, and they didn't find their bodies or anything. And so that always kind of intrigued me, like where are they? And whenever I went into the canyon country, I was always like, oh, you know, is one of those guys going to walk out from around a corner somewhere? Right, exactly. Um, I I remember yeah. times being in the canyon country just out exploring around, and, and you'd find, you know, water jugs and a food stash that somebody had put there. Yeah. I'd seen that many times out, out there, and uh, and you're just kind of like, uh-oh, maybe I, 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 shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. Jonathan Thompson's talking about his upcoming book, Behind the Slick Rock Curtain. You can also check out his his um, nonfiction book, The River of Lost Souls, The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster. Jonathan, we've got to leave it there. I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about this, all of these things. We need to have you back on because we only got through half of what I wanted to ask you. How can people find you? Uh, they can go to lostsoulspress.com. That's probably the easiest way. Awesome. LostSoulsPress.com. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jim. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.tauslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.